Hello, and welcome to Hope Church. We're a local church with chill style, real faith, and no perfect people allowed. Thanks for checking out our podcast. This is a message from our SoCal location in the Santa Cruz, California area. We hope this message is encouraging. If you live near either of our locations, we'd love to have you join us for one of our many Sunday services. Good morning, you guys. Welcome to Hope. Uh, on this, this is the first Sunday of fall, right? Yeah, it's a beautiful, crisp day. I see some of you are dressing like you still think it's summer. My father-in-law's in shorts over there. Um, but I, I love fall. It's my favorite. I look forward all year long to going to the, the fall collection part of my flannel wardrobe. And I pull out this lovely orange and gray number right here. I, I, uh, I'm really excited about this, this flannel. And this, yeah, hey, easy, Joe. Easy. Easy there. Easy, pal. It's a uniform, okay? It's a uniform. So if you've been with us the last few weeks, we have been in a series called Art of Neighboring, um, which you saw in that lovely graphic um, created by our very own Richard and Dustin. And this, in this series, we, we talked about a few things, right? So just to encapsulate, because we're wrapping it up today, just to encapsulate where we've come from and how we got here um, in this series, Art of Neighboring. We talked about, uh, first, Tim introduced us to this idea that we are sent. We are sent ones. We are, we are sent to our community. We've been sent to the people around us by Jesus, for Jesus, to bring Jesus to the people around us. And, and then uh, Danny came and spoke, and he talked about rethinking who our neighbor is. Um, and part of that process is kind of letting go of the walls that we build between us and other people that are different than us. And, and then last week, Tom, uh, Tim gave maybe one of my favorite messages I've ever heard from him, which, where he talked about what it means to truly listen, to really, the difference between listening and, and just hearing, um, to really get down into someone's space and their level and to really listen. And today, that brings us to where we are right now, which is we're going to talk about to love is to serve. To love is to serve. Now, I, uh, I have a picture. I brought a picture, if you want to throw it up there. In the back, this is a picture um, from my space at home. This is, this is my, uh, right above my headboard, in my bed. And I, so I keep a bunch of books by my bed because I read every night. When we climb into bed, I read for a little bit before I turn off the light. And I, I, uh, I read a lot, and I, I, some, I don't want to just read one kind of book at one time, so I usually, I'll be reading from three or four books at a time. That's usually how I do it. Uh, for a few nights, I'll read in one, and the next, I'll jump over to another, and then back again, and back and forth. So I... I got a little bit of theology up there. I've got a great graphic novel by Will Eisner, A Contract with God. It's a beauty. Uh, I got a little Neil Gaiman, some Norse mythology there, a couple of Bibles, right? I've got a Rabbi Zacharias. I've got some science over here, Bill Bryson. That's a great book. Um, and you notice I have a Stephen King book there. I've always, I don't know what it is, but since I was a kid, I love a good scary story. I love a story that just grabs you by the lapels and just, you know, shakes you a little bit. I wanted you to have that in mind when I tell you this story. So the other day, uh, actually it was a couple weeks ago, my youngest son Ben, he had not been feeling good for a couple days. In fact, he's not himself. He had a little bit of a fever and he was just real lethargic and we even gave him a COVID test, but it was negative. We don't know what happened. He just wasn't feeling himself for a couple of days and he's a lot better now. But, but this one day I came home from work and I walked in the, the door and you know, when you have a family, when you have three small children, it's, it's not, it's very unusual to walk in your door and hear silence, 
to greet you. Usually it's the opposite of silence is what greets you, right? So I, I walk in and it's completely silent in my house. And I stop for a second and I kind of, to get my bearings, I'm like, what, what is off about this situation? And I look to my left and I see that Ben is sitting on the couch just looking out the window. So his back is to me and his little head swivels around. He just goes, and he has these like dark circles under his eyes. And he doesn't say a word, he just looks at me. And here's the thing, in one second, this horrible thought just like poured into my brain and I had to experience it for a minute. And the thought was, oh my gosh, Ben died during the day, Amy buried him in the backyard, and then he crawled up out of the shallow grave, sat on the couch, and this is a zombie version of him. That just like, I didn't, when you have an imagination like mine, you don't, you don't cause these thoughts to happen, they just happen. And this all happened in like one second. I was like, oh! I go, oh, no. Hey, Ben, how's it going? And he was fine. Everything was fine. He was just having an off day. My point is that uh, that thought was the plot of Stephen King's uh, Pet Cemetery, which I hadn't read in like 20 years, right? And it just came back. Sometimes the way we view things uh, is uh, context. It's very important how we view things. It, it kind of it shapes our view of important things, the, the context of our lives, our experiences, the things we read, the things we hear, the things we think we know, shapes how we view important things. Also, my mom was right. I shouldn't have read that book. Um, I know she's watching right now, so mom, you were right. Um, so how do we view this idea of service? What context do we look at this concept of service through? Now, one of the ways that we look at service, I think, is through the context of our relationships, human relationship. And there's, there's different ways of describing a relationship. Some healthy, some not so healthy. Uh, one way of describing a relationship is codependence. Codependence is where you know, one person needs the other, and the other person needs that to be needed. That's not a healthy version of relationship. Um, and real service can't happen in that context. Another way of thinking about relationship is independence, where, where each person lives as if they don't need anyone else. They live independently of one another. Um, oddly enough, this is, a, this is a feature of relationship that is actually uh, praised in our culture. I mean, when someone, what do we say when someone does it on their own? They pull themselves up by their bootstraps, right? They, they went out and they, they did it on their own, and we praise that like that's a good thing. But I want to talk about a third way, a third way of experiencing human relationship, and, and that is this word interdependence. Interdependence. It's where people live in a way that leaves them open to meeting and filling each other's needs in a balanced and healthy way. This is actually what Jesus calls us to do. Another way of saying it would be to put ourselves, to put others ahead of ourselves, while at the same time making ourselves vulnerable to the possibility that they won't do the same. See how that works? Right? We put others first, knowing full well there's a possibility that they won't do the same. That's hard. That's really hard. That's a hard thing to do. It's kind of like riding a unicycle. Anyone can do it for two seconds, right? But it takes, it takes practice. It takes experience to do it for longer periods. Well, among other things, Christianity is a descriptor for how to do exactly that, and we're, we're going to talk about that today. Um, so I have this, this idea I wanted to share with you, and I wanted to draw it. So imagine that this 
This is a person, right? This is a person. There's, this, is what, this is inside the person, and this is the world outside of them. Now, if this person is very inwardly focused, they think about themselves most of the time, right? If, they, if most of the things that they do are to meet their own needs, if uh, all of their choices revolve around them, right? The things they do and, they, and the way they act with other people is to please and meet their own needs. What, what, do, we, what do we call this? There's a term. Self-centered. Yeah, there's a term for this. Self-centered. Do we, is it fun to be around self-centered people? No. Uh, Tim talked about this last, last week about how you ever talk to someone and uh, you realize that they're just waiting for you to be done so that they can hear their favorite sound on earth, which is the sound of their own voice. You know, you know that feeling, right? Yeah, so this is, this, is, this, is not, this is not what we want, right? This isn't what we want. And, and we all agree on this. So why is it when we change the scale, so, so this, that's a person, out here is, let's say this is a, a church, or a, a community, or a city, or, or a nation perhaps. Why is it that when we just simply change the scale, suddenly, suddenly we're all okay with it? We're not okay with this, but if there's a bunch of us together, suddenly we're okay with it, being centered on ourselves, to take actions and make choices that are good for us, but not necessarily good for those outside of that circle. You see how changing the scale shouldn't change the principle, right? How does this happen? How does how do we get into larger groups and suddenly become self-centered? How does that happen? Well, one way that happens is, is that God followers, people that, that might have an experience or some, some revelation about who God is, they, they, wanna, they want to uh, remember that. And so they create re- religious ritual and, and practice so that they can look back and remember that thing. But then eventually it becomes about the ritual and the practice. And they forget the experience. They forget the revelation of who God is. We're going to hear today from um, the prophet Isaiah. We're going to read from the book of Isaiah. And he talks about this exact thing. He talks about exactly this. Um, now, this is an Old Testament passage. I always like to say this when we read from the Old Testament, that we're, we're cautious not to take, you know, these scriptures were written in the Old Testament not directly to us, but they are very much for us in the sense that we, we get a glimpse of God speaking to a particular group that isn't us, but, but we get to hear how God would speak to a group of people in a particular context, and we get to hear his heart and see his character, and we get to, to take from that. So um, I've invited uh, Poppy to come and read. Now, normally at this point, I would read the chapter, but I'd like to hear this in someone else's voice. I'm sure you would too, and Poppy has an important voice in our community, and so she's going to read from Isaiah. This is chapter 58, verse 6 through 12. Starting at verse 6. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. 
Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of the oppression, with the pointing finger and the malicious talk, if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins. And, <laughs> wait, there's more. <laughs> and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. Isn't that a beautiful passage? Thanks, Poppy, for reading that for us. Very well read. Good job. This is a, this is a profoundly challenging piece of scripture when you hear um, when you understand the context of what's happening here and, and God speaking to his people. You know, this chapter of Isaiah is classically known as the fasting chapter because it's one of the few places in the Bible where it really talks a lot about the, the topic of fasting. And, but the, the irony is how what, the way God talks about it, he says, this is actually the kind of fasting I have chosen. This is the religious ritual that I want from you. And he goes on to describe something that's not fasting at all and not ritual at all. It's the way that we think about people that have less around us, right? That, that, that really cool part at the end that, that Poppy read where God says, if you do these things, here's how you will be known. You'll be known as, uh, these are capitalized, like, like these are the names you'll be known by, repairer of broken walls. Can we honestly say that, that we're known as repairers of broken walls? Should we be known as repairers of broken walls? I think we should be. He said, you'll be known as restorers of streets with dwellings. You know, in the original Hebrew, it means makers of livable neighborhoods. This is not, this is not conceptual language. This is actual language. This, this is, you'll be known as people that go out into your community and make neighborhoods livable for lower-income families. That's what it's talking about, right? Rather than just a few kind of bright spots of altruism, rather than just um, you know, good, some good people doing good things in their midst, this is a radical new way of living. This, this is meant to be a systemic change in the fabric of our community around us. We are, I like this word, I don't know if you've heard this word before, terraforming. You know, uh, NASA hopes to someday, like in the next 60 to 100 years, send equipment, big huge pieces of equipment to Mars um, that will change the atmosphere into a breathable one for human beings. It will change the, the overall temperature of the planet so that people can survive without spacesuits and uh, so that water can exist and plants can grow. It's called terraforming. It means to make something like Earth, right? Terra means Earth, to, to change it to be like Earth. And, and what we're called to do in this passage, we're, we're terraforming the Earth. You and I, that's what we're doing. We're terraforming this planet in preparation for the return of a king. But, but it's not the physical environment that we're changing. It's the social environment. There's a king coming. Did you know that? There's a king coming. His name is Jesus. And our job, while we wait for him, 
is to change this place around us into a place that looks more like he would have it look in the way that we treat each other. This is a radical new way of thinking about politics and socioeconomics. And it doesn't fit into the mold of what's presented to us. You know, when you think about like American economics or, or politics, we, we basically have two options, right? We kind of have two things to choose from, if we're being honest, right? Or some variation of those two things. Neither of these options fit into this mold. It's not capitalism, it's not socialism or Marxism, it's not conservatism or liberalism. This, this model will not fit with any of our isms. This is something else, this is something different. This is a call to something radical, if we would just hear it and respond. So I wanted to read this passage of scripture, or have Poppy read it actually, and then I wanted us to just think about it, and I wanna make just two observations, okay? And then we're gonna, we're gonna do something else that will be a little bit radical for us, okay? We'll do that in just a second. So here's my two quick observations from this passage of scripture. The first is that to live a life of service has a price but we are made beautiful when we pay it. This is difficult to understand because it doesn't fit with our logical understanding of the world. How is something made beautiful for paying a price? And yet somehow, that is exactly what happens. You know, further back in Isaiah, the same prophet, he writes this. He says, how beautiful, this is Isaiah uh, chapter 52. He says, how beautiful, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet. Okay, so, so are you following that? What, what's beautiful? The feet, right? How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who do what? Bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, that's the people of God, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He's redeemed Jerusalem. I wanted to show you this picture of, uh, this is my dad and I when we went to Israel. This is taken just in the, the mountains above uh, Jerusalem. I think we should have it. There we go. Look at those two guys, huh? Hanging out in Israel. So you can see there's a, right over the top of my dome, there's the Dome of the Rock, right? Yep. And do you see that long wall running along there just above my head? That's, that's where the original wall of, um, of the temple in Jerusalem was. And this, this, this hill that we're on, see in, in, in Israel they call everything mountains. They, they call it all mountains. But to us this would be like foothills, right? Because they don't, they don't have our Sierras, they don't have our Rocky Mountains. So everything that goes like this a little bit, they call it a mountain. So, so we're on uh, the Mount of Olives, right? Um, and just down into that valley and then up is Jerusalem. So, so when when Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. The mountains he's talking about are these ones right here that I'm standing on with my dad in this picture. And what he's talking about is the, the people of Israel were in captivity. They had been taken away from their, their promised land and they'd been taken to um, the Assyrian nation. And 
They were being released from captivity, or it was being prophesied that they would be released. And so messengers were running ahead to run where? Where were they going? Back home to the people that were left, because there were still some people living in the ruins of Jerusalem. And so these messengers ran all the way home from the Assyrian Empire, all the way to Jerusalem to tell people, there's good news. God has done it. Your God reigns. Everything that you hoped for is coming to pass. And so this passage says the feet of the people that ran all the way through these mountains are beautiful for having served others. Is that an odd thing to say, your feet are beautiful? I mean, I, I was wearing hiking boots in this picture, and I can tell you at the end of the day, I took off my hiking boots. They were not pretty. They, they were pretty sweaty, actually. Now imagine you did that in just sandals, right? So there's somehow, somehow, when we live a life of service, when we put others first, we're made beautiful through the process when we pay that, that price. Here's another picture I wanted to show you. This is, this is a picture of my wife's hands. Those are her hands there. <clears throat> my wife has done some amazing acts of service. If you know her, to know her is to know a person who serves selflessly. Um, she, she gives of herself, and um, she gives of her time, and she, she gives in ways that are um, amazing to me. And, but one of the things that she's done in her life is she brought three human beings into this world that are alive today and sitting right over there, and she paid a price to do it. If you know anything about pregnancy, a woman's body pays a price to bring a life into this world. And you can, you can see it in her hands. When the baby is forming in her womb, uh, the body chooses the baby over the over its own self, and it sends calcium, for example, to the baby instead of to the mother. And so you can see it in her nails. You'll see lines in her nails. In fact, if you, if you look at any woman's nails who's, who's had a baby, you'll see these lines. And it's because calcium diverts away selflessly to this life that's coming, that's being born. And you see the color in her hands will change. The pigment changes. Oils that naturally travel through the body and and make the skin soft, are diverted to this new life. This is kind of a picture of how God calls us to lay down our life, to sacrifice from our life, to, to put others first. Amy's done this. She's done this three times, in fact, knowing full well each of the following times what the cost would be. And she paid the price to bring these lives. And somehow, can I just tell you this? These are the most beautiful hands I've ever seen. I've never seen a pair of hands more beautiful than hers. She's made beautiful through paying the price. Are you hearing me? Does that make sense? That's my first observation. My second observation is this. To live a life of service is to know Jesus in the ways that really matter. You know, I would say this. I, I think that Jesus has a lot of fans. He has a lot of fans. And it makes sense. He's pretty great. He's said some cool stuff. He's had an impact on the world. People know him as a, a teacher. Some people call him a prophet. He's done some amazing things. And he has a lot of fans. I think churches historically have been full of fans of Jesus. But only a few followers. 
There's a difference between being a fan and being a follower of Jesus. To being a, being a follower is to know him in the ways that really matters. Jesus talks about this himself in, I think, one of the most terrifying stories in Scripture. He gives this, he gives this image of sheep and goats, and he places himself as, as being in this moment where he's separating them. He tells this story to his friends in Matthew chapter 25, and it ends like this. He says, then he, he's the he, he's talking about himself, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes, and you didn't clothe me. I was sick in prison, and you didn't look after me. And they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick in prison and did not help you? When did this happen, Lord? You'll notice they call him Lord. These are not people that don't know about him. Maybe these are fans of Jesus. When did we do this to you? It says, he will reply. In the original Greek, it says, then the king will answer. Remember, there's a king coming, right? There's a king coming. It says, then the king will answer. Truly, I tell you, whatever you didn't do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. In the Greek, that word least means the very smallest there could be. The very smallest. So the king, right? The king puts himself on equal footing with those that have the least amount of power, the least amount of resource, the least amount of agency. The king, for whom someday every knee will bow, modeled for us what he asks of us. When he got down on both knees and he washed the dirty feet of his friends. That's a, that's a radical thought, isn't it? Isn't it? I want to leave you with this. I, I prayed two dangerous prayers in my youth, and I wanted to share both of them with you. I prayed two prayers, basically one sentence each. The first is that I prayed that God would help me see other people the way that he sees them. I prayed this in my early 20s. I, I prayed it very much like that. God, help me to see people the way that you see them. Now, the reason it's dangerous is because that's the kind of prayer that God tends to answer. It is. He tends to answer those kinds of prayers, and he did with me. And it messed me up. <laughs> it did. What it did is it ruined me for selfish living. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't sometimes live selfishly or even often, but it does take a lot of the pleasure out of it, I'll tell you that. It really does. To see people the way that he sees them is to see the value in even the very smallest among us, the very the outsider, the person that comes from the, the fringe and the outside, to see them with the value that he places on them. I think that's what God would have for us today. We hope this message encouraged you to take the next steps in your relationship with God. The cool thing is that you don't have to do it alone. There are a lot of ways you can get connected here at Hope. Not only do we want you to feel at home at Hope, we'd love to help you find a home. Please check out discoverhope.church 
and click connect or just email us at info at discoverhope.church. Lastly, we give everything we can away for free and rely 100% on volunteers and donations to support this ministry. If you'd like to give to the Mission of Hope Church, you can select the Give option on our website or text any amount to 831-800-2060. Thanks again for tuning in.